And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just queue up my Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yay! And we are at the very start with this episode for spooky season. (laughs) Thank you for the sound effects. I was waiting for one of us to get there. I was trying to think of a spooky song and then I was like, hmm, drawing a blank. (laughs) Are you going to sample that song that you wrote last season for spooky season and plug it in? That would be good because that never actually made it anywhere. I don't you never think I was, put it in? No, I wasn't allowed to. We decided on something else. Mm. Oh, well, maybe, the trigger, I guess I'm feeling nicer. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I like, I wrote spooky, spooky episode or something like that. Like, I sang a song and you wouldn't let me use it. Yeah, I forgot about this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's I guess it's coming this year, coming to you <laughs> at, in October time near soon. Oh, God. <laughs> That or we'll just plug it into one of the bloopers. Um, <laughs> okay, so we are doing another bite-sized bits. And what decade are we on today, Maggie? 1990. So after this, there's only two episodes of bite-sized bits left. That's true. That's true. We'll have to come up with something else so that we can still read short works. And we found our writer today through some Googling. And it was actually kind of hard to do. Because we were looking specifically for something spooky and specifically for something from the 1990s. And I came across this woman named Pat Murphy through my Googling. And I came across her on a Wikipedia article talking about women's voices and sci-fi. So she is notable in part because she helped fund one of these great sci-fi awards that focuses primarily on our understanding of gender roles within the genre of science fiction and fantasy. It's called the James Tiptree Jr. Award. And James Tiptree was the pen name of a female author whose name in real life was Alice Sheldon. And she was like a big science fiction writer who, you know, went under the James Tiptree pseudonym and part I'm sure so that people could find her work and read it because female authors are still kind of discriminated against unfortunately anyway that's really cool and this award is funded by grassroots efforts that according to Pat Murphy's authors page consists of grassroots efforts including auctions and bake sales and harnessing the power of chocolate chip cookies and an ongoing effort to change the world so that's cute She's also one of the people who, like I said before, exists as a, in the science fiction writing space and has for a few decades now. And not very many women do exist as like big names within the science fiction space. And she's won a number of awards, particularly for these two stories that we're reading today. They come from a short story collection called Points of Departure, which were, was published in 1990. And 
for this short story collection, she won the Philip K. Dick Award, which is another science fiction-based award. So, yeah, do you want to start with The Vegetable Woman, Miss Max? Sure. You said dick and it made me laugh. Oh, boy. Is that where we're at today? (laughs) I'm tired. I'm tired. (laughs) So, His Vegetable Wife is a short story from this collection. And essentially, it's about a man who orders a packet of seeds to grow a woman to be his wife. And she is a plant wife. And things go poorly. You're laughing at me, but like that's the story. That's the whole story. <laughs> that is the whole story. Not it's a bad way. It's a very short story. Like it's a short, short story. It is a short, short story. It's it's pretty basic. Yeah, this man grows a woman out of his garden. There's some mention that he has had bad experiences with women in the past. And he says something like he believes that a man should have a wife. And so he's just kind of grown her and it's a little creepy because he's kind of like her caretaker and he's just sitting here waiting for her to grow like kind of like grooming her a little and he keeps getting aroused because she takes on a womanly form as a plant and keeps like touching her without her consent because she can't consent yet because she's a plant and when she eventually does get like the ability to move and stuff she starts pushing him away and showing signs of non-consent she's non-verbal which is another thing so that it's a wild short story eventually she ends up killing him and wants to bury him in the garden and see what grows yeah yeah i mean it's a wild ride i think something the story did really well though was that the dread for me kept building up as I was reading it, like it, even for, for a story that's only like six or seven pages, I feel like the suspense and the pacing of it really ramped up correctly because like at first you're reading it and you're like, Oh, this is very odd. Uh, and like, he has some problematic views on women and you're like, okay, sure. And then by page three, she's grown pubic hair and he like can't resist touching her. Like as soon as she becomes in his eyes sexually mature, he can't Mm -hmm. resist touching her. And so like, then your level of dread really ramps up a bit more because it feels so just like almost futile, you know, like almost like we had gone back 600 years where like, as soon as you were like physically mature, heavy quotes, you were just sort of like right for the picking. And like, it goes on like that until like very clear and violent abuse starts happening to this woman it's interesting too because the first time he touches her he i'm gonna read the passage very quickly he backed away hastily noticing only then that he had broken the stalks of several leaves when he stepped in to fondle the trunk He touched the broken leaves guiltily and then reminded himself that she was only a plant. She felt no pain. That is a thread that continues throughout the story. Like in the very beginning, it talks about how on the instructions, it says that she's not going to feel anything because she is a plant. And so this idea is that she's she's almost kind of like a mail-ordered bride, but it's more fictionalized so that she's not human 
even though she has human-like tendencies or not seen as human. But I thought it was interesting that he feels remorse at this one point and then tells himself that it's like, it's okay to not feel remorse. And that continues as the abuse continues. He'll he'll feel some remorse, but then he like gets excited about her non-consent or her crying. Yeah, and I think something interesting too is that there's a couple things there that you talked about that I picked up on and thought was interesting. So the first thing is that he has a real inability to distinguish between women in general. I thought that was really interesting from the whole like seed packet thing, you know, like uh, women are pretty much just like any other plant, you know, they need the same sort of things, like they aren't that different, etc, etc. And even when he describes the different varietals that he could have picked on, which feels like the wrong word, but like we are literally talking about women as yeah (laughs) like there wasn't a ton of distinguishing factors and he was really just looking for like a hardy plant that could essentially take whatever life aka he throws at her so that was the first thing that i picked up on and like that theme starts sentence two of the story so you really know who you're dealing with real quick yeah. And then the other thing that I think is interesting about what you said is that after that passage you just read, he does feel some level of like true remorse and he tries to make it up to her and he like tries to sort of fix the damage. And it's only when she starts actively, like when she becomes fully mature, so to speak, and has like movement of limbs and things like that, that and she starts actively resisting him, that that behavior stops. So, like, he almost has more respect for her feelings when she is essentially an inanimate object than he does when she has any kind of sentience that she can at least show and that she can, like, actively resist with. And I guess to the point where you're absolutely right, he says that when she starts crying while he's raping her, essentially, it turns him on because some reaction is better than no reaction. So, like, ugh, it's really gross. It's just really, really gross. It is really, really gross, but it's an important story, and it is coming from the 1990s. So we were like, domestic violence is still talked about, but there were several, there were several stories from this book that I read that dealt particularly with domestic violence and assault. And I think that that was especially something that was being talked about in the 1990s versus in other time periods, because we were still struggling as and we still are struggling with the acceptance that these things exist because it's not just him that sees her this way like it's there's a point where a guy from the government comes over to look at his plants and he sees the woman standing there and she's naked and he comments about her and says something like oh here it is your wife is beautiful finn kept his temper with an effort They're quite sensitive, I hear, said the young man. And he's like, he's also treating her like an object. He says, you have good taste to our main character, Finn. Yeah, so I think it's important that we, I think this was very deliberate. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I didn't mean to say that it was gross in the sense that, like, it wasn't thought about. Or to imply that, like, it wasn't an important story. It's just really... It's just well done. Like, it's, it's a story that knows what it wants to say and gets to the fucking point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it does it really well. I think there's a lot of layers of metaphors in it as well. Some of them obvious, 
I think some of them a little bit more subtle. Like something that I found more subtle was at the beginning again, and I think I'm focused on the beginning because this is where like this dread really starts to build. Finn talks about how the grass whispers secrets and he feels a lot of joy when he's able to cut that grass down and make the whispers stop. And that really stuck out to me just because that idea of like, I don't know, maybe this is just me reading too far into it, but like whispering and and almost like gossip, right? Seems very, it's a very feminized thing in our culture. And he really enjoys stopping that. Uh, And it's just such foreshadowing for what happens throughout the rest of it. So it's like stuff like that is more subtle. And then there's stuff like the fact that he, before she can, like right before she totally matures and is done growing, right? And it's just like her plant lady self, he knows that she's about to do this. And so he ties her down. Like he puts, he ties a, a knot to her ankle so that she can't move. So like, this is her first real interaction, not like her first real interaction with him. It is kind of hard because we don't get her point of view until the end to, like, know that she is, in fact, like, a, you know, obviously sentient being that she thinks things about all of this um, because she is also a plant. So it's kind of hard to know at what point she becomes aware of his interactions with her. Mm -hmm. I think it's the whole time, but, like, her first interaction with him where she's able to actually do anything back he takes that choice away from her. He physically roots her where she is. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Like, the only interactions we really see from her is her resistance. And he just doesn't care. No, and he never tries anything else. Like, he never tries to talk to her. He never says, maybe I shouldn't go out to the field today because this wife that I've grown is about to, like, sprout or whatever. You know, he just leaves her behind and just ties her down. Yep. Yep. I think, too, that thing about the grass is really interesting because the whole idea of gardening and, like, it reminds me of the man versus nature sort of thing where, like, man is constantly trying to control nature and I'm using man as a humankind, but also as a – also as man because men have historically been the people in power and are currently the people in power even today – but, like, there's also a desire for order. And there is, at one point, the plant lady is called, like, a wild thing. So, yeah, there's just, like, this desire for control that runs throughout the story that could be a direct commentary on men's interaction with women, but I think could also extend to this sort of, like, hierarchical structure that keeps everything in place. Yeah, or, I mean, even, I think, to go more obvious than what you're saying, right? Like, it's as much a struggle of man versus woman as it is, like, man versus climate, you know? Man versus Mother Nature. Yeah. The only language this Finn speaks to our plant lady is the one of violence. When he comes back and he notices that she's, like, out and about and around, the first thing he does is rape her. And when she resists, that's when the physical abuse starts. Which is heinous and terrible, but I think also extends to a metaphor about the way we've treated the planet as well. So it's the story is really like a double whammy in that way. It is a double whammy in that way. 
It's um, it's scary. So it's fitting that we read it during the spooky season, except it's not as fun. It's not as fun as our other spooky things will be. Another interesting point that I found, there's a lot of parallels with this story and the next story that we're going to talk about. Um, But this in this story, there's a point where he's talking about the variety that he chose and like how womanly her body is becoming. And then there's a passage that says, though her eyes were open, her expression was that of a sleepwalker, an innocent young girl who wanders in the darkness unaware. And to me, that was interesting because he wants a hardy woman, but he doesn't want her to have any personality. He wants her to be moldable. And I don't know, that just kind of speaks to my general experience with men. Them wanting something childlike and like the over sexualization of girlhood, too, which I also think is kind of a thread throughout this story because he's physically watching her mature and is her caretaker. Yeah, for sure. I think also the thing about the hardy woman, right? Like all of those descriptors that they use to describe like the different kinds of seeds he could have bought, like they really mean absolutely nothing. No, almost. yeah. Like, they do in plant talk, right? Like, a hardy plant isn't going to give up on you if you forget to water it. But, like, when it comes to actually describing women, like, one of them is, like, the... One of them was described as being a maiden. Okay, sure. Mm. One was Uh, a bride. Yeah. But, like, they just aren't... The the language isn't comparable there. And he doesn't realize it. He, He doesn't... He says throughout the story that he has a really clear idea of what he wants, but like he doesn't have a clear idea of what he wants because when he, he doesn't want a wife, he just thinks that he should have one. Yeah. And so like, there's this also just like bumbling idiocy to a certain extent that he exudes throughout the story too. Um, because he's just going through the motions of what he feels he should be doing When in reality, he has this really, like, deep-seated hatred for women. And you find out at the end of the story that he says something like, every woman has abandoned him. It started when his mother put him up for adoption. So, like, it's really just, like, deep-seated in his soul there. Which, I don't really know how I feel about that particular image or, like, trope being used in this story. But it's, I think, the only thing that I sort of disagree with. Well, I mean, do you think that the farmer would categorize himself as a misogynist no but i think that that's part of the point right is that it's really clear to the reader that he is that like this stuff is is deep-seated in him and he does not see it because he doesn't even see what he's doing is wrong and i think part of it is because in his head he's she's a plant right like yeah no i agree yeah it's because he's she's a plant and she's not he doesn't have any understanding of what a woman is it's kind of like back in season one when we had elena on and she was like men don't really love women (laughs) because they just see them as like pets is what she said oh yeah that was bold (laughs) but i think it's really i think that's absolutely relevant to this story right is that like he just wants something nice to look at that he can take care of, but not too much care of, because she should really be taking care of him to a certain extent. But, like, that he should also be able to just, like, create, build what he wants, you know? Yeah. 
And I think it's interesting that you pointed out that misogyny thing. I would argue even though not all misogynists have like mommy issues, I would argue that it is deep seated and that we are like even myself as someone who was raised as a feminist, we are trained to hate women. Like this is a woman hating society. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. That wasn't the part that I objected from. I just objected from the fact that like he, the author used that moment to like demonize his mother who gave him up for Uh. for adoption. That's just, that's just a trope that I personally don't jive with because I think that there's already a lot of other stigmas around adoption and women who put children up for adoption and then people who do adopt some of them well placed especially if we're talking about like interracial families in that way and the way that's in which some white parents are you know equipped to take on children who are Mm -hmm. of color that was the part that I just like didn't appreciate it's kind of a personal reader thing not the fact that we were talking about the fact that like his misogyny is so deep-seated that it's been raised in him in this case it seems like from infancy to like become the way it is okay okay i understand what you're saying that makes sense i haven't i just think that there's other ways that she could have like there's other images she could have used that would have gotten across the same thing but like that's just like real nitpicky personal reader stuff you know no that makes sense that makes sense that's a deeper reading than i was taking of it So I understand what you're saying now. There was another thing that I wanted to talk about. Oh, right. About his misogyny. So I think it's also interesting that layered in here, he feels remorse. Because I think that, as I've said on the show, without providing evidence 20 million times already, like violence is harmful to everyone involved. Obviously, more towards the people it's being perpetuated against. But like, violence is not a healthy act for anyone. And it's like the emotions it brings out aren't necessarily like acting on those emotions just aren't healthy. So I think the remorse is important because it does it it does kind of stay there until the very end until he tries to kill her and nothing happens. And so she kills him instead, which I think is really interesting, too, because something the scene where he tries to kill her as violent as it is, he's also aware of the fact that so he tries to choke her, but she is a plant. She doesn't breathe. Mm -hmm. She gathers air through, you know, her her skin photosynthesis, going back to 10th grade biology here. I don't know why waving, like flapping my arms was the sign for photosynthesis, but here we are. So like it was the symbol of trying to kill her really that he was trying to get across rather than actually trying to kill her, Mm -hmm. which like I think is worth talking about. But I also don't quite know what I make of it yet because he was trying to kill her, but not actually trying to kill her because he knew that his action wouldn't actually kill her yeah i mean she's i'm in the twilight zone (laughs) well i don't know if he actually knew it i think he was just angry and acting violently like i think he he knows on one level that she doesn't or he thinks he knows at least on one level that she doesn't feel pain and it does say explicitly that him uh that him putting the pressure on his on her throat does not disturb her. Um, I think that moment is important because she 
is kind of she, she is a younger being right and she doesn't have the same language for this human society and he is the person that has brought her into this world right so he's giving her a symbol on what is and isn't acceptable and she sees this and she does the same exact thing and so we don't know if it was her intention to kill him necessarily but like it it put a stop to what was happening to her I mean, I think it. Did, I think it did. I think she did mean to kill him, though, because then she she does that, and then she takes his pen knife out of his pocket and stabs him. Yeah. <laughs> so she definitely meant to kill him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're right. You're right. But my point is that, like, he has taught her that violence is how you solve your problems, and then that's what she does. Not even just how you solve your problems, but just how you communicate everything in general like i said earlier like violence is the only language this man speaks this entire time yeah yeah what did you make of the ending the seeing what will grow oh wait hold up i did say something wrong though you're right in that she did suffocate him she took the knife to to, to cut the rope off of her ankle yeah so you you were right i was wrong <laughs> um i'll play that on loop someday it's okay <laughs> I'm wrong all the time. I don't know. It was. It's like this short little paragraph. It's the only. It's three lines long. It's the and it's the only paragraph in which we really switch to her point of view because the point of view the entire time is third person limited with us being in Finn's head. And then for the last two little paragraphs, we or like three little paragraphs, we finally switch to her like third person limited point of view because Finn can't narrate anymore because he's dead and so like I think on the one hand all she knows is violence and then like watching this man try and grow things so like maybe she's just curious or I think also something there's something interesting about the idea that she would see what grew in the sense that like she put this bad man in the ground so like is he going to be able to make anything? Will he be able to make something beautiful? Will it be terrible like he was? Like, Will it be a plant man? That's how I originally read it. It took me a couple of times of reading it. And I was like, oh, wait, is she going to grow herself a man? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Is she growing a plant man? <laughs> it's interesting, too, because he's not a great farmer, which I think is worth talking about as well. He's trying really hard, but like... All of his crops don't come up great. Like there's a, there's a point where he, he talks about a, a batch of apples that he grew that didn't grow right. So he ends up making this really like terrible liquor from them and he gets really drunk. So like he's out here supposedly growing new life, right? Like not with, with not even just with the lady, but just with the farm in general. But everything he grows comes out poorly like it doesn't work right or he kills it like with the grass yeah yeah so i wonder if we could make something about that like i don't know like maybe once man steps aside growth will be possible maybe once like we get this hierarchical shit this hierarchical patriarchy shit put in its place and maybe once like woman or nature takes over we'll see new life begin to grow yeah I think so. 
All right, let's talk about the other story, unless there's anything else you want to talk about with this one. No, I think that I got through pretty much everything that I wanted to hear. You had more thoughts about this next story than I did, though, so I'm curious to see what you uh, what you made of it. Yeah, I liked this story a little bit better. They're both good, but I thought it was interesting because it's also about plant woman, kind of. <laughs> plant woman and domestic violence. That's the theme of today's show. Spooky! <laughs> Okay, so in this story, this is called Woman in the Trees, and it's about a woman with an abusive husband, and she very much wants to be a good wife and is constantly trying to keep him from having his episodes and loves her husband. And they move to a new house, and she sees these women living in the trees, and they're not really described too much. I think there's maybe like one spot where she describes them as like being brown, like like trees, you know, not necessarily racialized. They're also associated with the color blue often. Okay, yeah, that's true. So it's just like this. She sees these trees and she knows that these women are looking out for her and she feels a little bit safer in this house because she knows that there are women there watching It's mostly just a struggle with this woman and her husband until she finally goes and joins the tree ladies. Yeah. See, Harmony and I had different thoughts on this because I I read this and immediately read it as a response to The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which we're actually reading a novella by her in a couple of weeks that's not The Yellow Wallpaper. But for anyone who doesn't know, The Yellow Wallpaper was written in the late or the early 1890s, and it was about a woman who is deemed insane by her doctor husband and is shut up in one room of their house where there's yellow wallpaper. And no matter what she does to appease him, he won't let her out. He's deemed her to be hysterical and insane. And eventually she starts seeing a woman moving through the wallpaper, through the pattern of the wallpaper. And at the end, they like talk to each other and the woman The main character, it's sort of implied, like, actually loses it a little bit from being trapped, like, really suffers a mental health break because of Mm -hmm. it, even though she hadn't been before. But the woman in the wallpaper goes free. She escapes. So I read this. To me, it seemed like, to a certain extent, a potentially happier ending response to that. Mm -hmm. Because we've got this husband who has his wife metaphorically trapped. He, she has nowhere to go because her family has said that they won't take her back now that she's married. She's barely 20 years old. She's clearly a stay-at-home wife, so she doesn't have her own financial resources. She's dependent on her husband. And now he's removed her from society to live on this, like, sort of farmhouse situation. So she's physically trapped in the situation that she's in by another abusive husband And she takes comfort and solace from the woman that she sees in the oak trees and eventually joins them at the end. So for, uh, and it even talks about the fact it, there's some point in the middle where she talks about the fact that as the child, as a child, she looked at yellow wallpaper because it had like a cocker spaniel on it or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like I saw these two things sort of as like call and response to each other, which I think still makes it a really good story, but I think made it for me a little bit harder to read super deeply into it because I was just reading so many of these things as being like a retelling of this other story I know well. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes, I obviously (laughs) did not 
did not pick that up. I think the most important thing to me was the solidarity aspect because he he's able to isolate her because she goes to her mother and her mother's and tells her mother after the first time that he abuses her that he hit her. And her mother is like, you have to keep your husband happy. Like Maggie was saying before, like the family won't take her back. And he isolates her completely from her sister and she has no friends. But also throughout the story, the first time that he hurts her, she ends up going to the doctor and the doctor buys her story of like falling down the stairs or something. You know, like that cliche, I tripped down the stairs She says something about being clumsy and he writes down accident, but it seems like he doesn't really believe it. And she's interacting with other people who seem to like, like the landlord who's and the landlord's wife and the landlord's wife. But before she interacts with the wife, the landlord also notices some bruises that she has and she is able to pass it off as her just being clumsy again. So there's this, there's this line of lying throughout the the story that she talks about. And she talks about almost believing the lies herself that I found really compelling. I did too. And I, I think that two things you said there really stuck out to me, especially in kind of contrast to the story I was talking about before. The first being that absolutely a really important part of this story is that she gets through this horrible situation through the female solidarity she finds with the woman in the trees and the strength that they give her and the unending compassion and support that she finds in them as terrible things are happening. And they gently sort of nudge her and teach her and say, no, you can get out of this. Like you can escape this. So I think that that's really important. And the second thing is the theme of lying as well that I thought was really interesting because she's lying to herself. She's lying to everyone else. No, none of these parties really believe her. I get the feel. I got the feeling from her interactions with the landlord and the doctor, the doctor, excuse me, especially that um, there's only a limited amount of things medical professionals can do. If you are an adult in a relationship that they believe is abusive, but you are not actively seeking out help escaping it, mm. which I actually only found out recently because, uh, I went to the doctor for the first, I, I went to a gynecologist um, and they gave me like this whole spiel because they have to ask me if I'm safe at home and stuff. Yeah. So like they gave me all of this info and all of this spiel. So like there's a lot of people who are aware that she's in trouble, but either for like legal reasons or weird like societal, I don't know how to help reasons, like don't offer the extended hand. And they're both men yeah. who would have had power in the situation to combat her husband in that sense. And it's the women who get her through it. I mean, so the doctor thing was weird to me because this is a story that was written before I was born. So I don't know. And I don't know what time period it takes place in. So I don't know what the laws were. But when you're talking Mm -hmm. about doctors are mandated reporters, they won't always report something that they're legally supposed to. So reporting doesn't always help the situation. Sometimes it makes it worse. Yeah. But, like, legally, like, if you were in Massachusetts right now, because Massachusetts seems to take mandated reporting really seriously, which is a state both Maggie and I have lived in at one point or another, like, he he would have reported it is what would happen. That's the, that's yeah. the course of action that he would have, that he's supposed to take anyway. Um, and something, like, somebody would have gone on to, out to investigate. Because if you are... If you are being harmed at home or you are endangering others, mandated reporters in that 
doesn't just include doctors, that also includes therapists and like teachers, anyone that works with children have to report it to someone, even if you're not seeking help. Specifically the police, because I've been a mandated reporter in the past because I've worked mm-hmm. with kids. So yeah, you're right with the with the doctor thing on that in that front. It's wrong, like legally wrong that he didn't do that. I just meant it in the sense that when I went to the doctor recently, like they they gave me this whole spiel and like beyond mandated reporting, if you aren't actively seeking yeah. help, it they end up in like a really weird gray area with what they can do. And because of that. I know that some doctors don't end up mandated reporting and stuff and like, but it's hard to know, especially because you're right in 1990. Like, I don't know what the laws were then. I just kind of am familiar with what they are now and the places in which they can and do fail and fail often. Yeah. And it is also hard because our, I mean, we know, we know now and our police, like, I think most people are aware that police are hardly ever the answer. And that's also true, I think, in some cases with social workers too, like we don't have really good systems to actually help people in need when we do need to report something. Yeah, but the woman in the trees don't accept her lies and are able to like offer her help and support in ways that the other characters in the story don't. Yeah, and they're also all seeing. So like, She has one instance where she's, like, kind of trying to lie to them or, like, pretend that... Hide, yeah. Yeah, hide that her husband is being angry and that something bad might happen. She's playing it off. But I think it's it's kind of hinted at that she knows the entire time that the woman in the trees know what's happening. And I think the lying thing is also interesting. Not to jump, like, to the end of the story too fast, but it it it's a very explicit thing throughout... And so eventually she joins the woman in the trees. I think the sci-fi element of of this is like, literally, she becomes one of the women in the trees. (laughs) But I think an important distinction there is that she's not trapped there. She's there to like heal and to grow and to gain strength. But more importantly, she says at the end, she's there until she never ever has to say sorry. And she never ever has to lie again. Yep, she'll be let down. (laughs) So like the lying is to a certain extent like by not being able to by I I, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this by like lying in a certain sense to preserve herself and preserve her life in the best way she knows how she is actively harming herself and the trees not only help her escape the physical circumstances in in which she's being harmed but also give her a mental space to heal from the ramifications that that action has on her. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some important threads besides the fact that we're both talking about like some sort of plant ladies between these two stories. One of them has to do with the woman herself, like the main character. She describes herself as being small and kind of fragile. And there's a point where she's up in the trees and a little girl, a little girl woman in the trees comes up to her and tells her she's beautiful. And the woman's like, she's looking at her wrists, which are super thin. And she says her hair is like stringy and she doesn't feel beautiful. But I thought there were, I thought that was an interesting parallel, like this idea of smallness. In the last story, our woman wasn't small, but the the young girl face kind of uh, felt reminiscent. 
Yeah, and she they're also both described often as being fragile. Our main character in the story explicitly says, I wrote the quote down, he does not think he does not like things that are stronger than he is. And there's a lot of things in the story as well that are described as being stronger than our main character. At one point before we know that the mother rejected her being able to come home, she talks about essentially just like internalized misogyny that she's learned throughout her entire life as she's thinking about the fact that she's like not a good enough wife and essentially that like all of this is her fault and she's brought it on herself and then she eventually recognizes and she says when your mother's voice is stronger than your own so like her will is being stamped out in multiple ways here Mm -hmm. through like this learned internalized misogyny that like has overtaken what she actually thinks and feels about the situation as well as physically from this, like, constant threat of violence from her husband. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting choice with these two stories. I felt, reading from a feminist author, to have both women depicted in this way. But again, as we've been talking about, like, I think it is purposeful and meant to meant to show how we sometimes think about ourselves and how women in a larger societal context are viewed. And why we might accept weakness. Yeah, I think that that's a really compelling point as well of like, just what we're the story, these stories are so much about what people are trained to be in like a negative patriarchal society. Yeah. And what happens when you just kind of like, fill those roles like you're quote unquote supposed to. Something that I think that's interesting about this story, though, in contrast to the last story that we talked about is that so in the last story we talked about there is no semblance of love between these two characters right like we're dealing with an angry farmer and his forced plant wife and like there's no emotion other than just like angry violence there yeah but here the main character when she's thinking about her husband she's writing in her journal and she writes down i love my husband and she crosses it out because that's wrong but then she writes down i hate my husband And she crosses that out because that's also wrong. And what she says is the truth is a slippery thing. So like to me, in that sense, I think that this story rang more realistically as well, because people don't stay in relationships. We've talked about this before, where they're being or they're victims of domestic violence because they like being unhappy. Essentially, they say because it's unsafe to leave. But like, also, they got into that relationship for a reason, right? Like there are things that they either thought were true about that person that they loved or you know like the truth is a slippery thing there when it comes to emotional attachments and like what it means to give that up and part of the reason she also ends up staying in the tree although less important than her sort of like mentally healing is also because she does need to parse through how she still feels about her husband and she says that there are still points even after she's safe that she does miss him She just recognizes the fact that, like, those moments weren't the truth. Like, when they would dance together or they would have a good time together, you know? Yeah. It is really interesting because this story starts off... It kind of reminded me of In the Dream House a little bit. I mean, I guess because it's dealing with that gray area a little bit more. Not, like, gray area in terms of abuse because he very clearly abuses her. and, And in the Dream House, she is also abused. But, like, the gray area of like emotions towards a person who is harmful to you like yeah the story starts off on a nice day and there is the threat of violence is there right in the beginning but like it's not the focus like on the second page they start fucking and she says 
Your body is fickle. It forgets the other times so quickly. He pulls you to him, and you cry out with each thrust, the pleasure coming in waves. Then he relaxes on top of you, and it feels good to have him near. So, like, she's constantly worried that something will change, but there are these, like, really lovely moments for her that she feels really happy in. Another thing that also stuck out to me was when he gets hurt. He, like, he tries to cut one of the branches of the trees off because it keeps scratching at the window. And our main character sees this as the tree woman scratching at the window and, like, whispering to her. But he tries to cut it off and um, he ends up hurting himself because he does it drunkenly. And it's kind of implied that maybe the tree woman had a hand in helping him hurt himself. She says when the the saw falls, it, it sounds like a laugh. So she afterwards comforts him and it says that she babies him, which I found interesting. I don't know why I found that interesting. I have a thing for like sad boys, like all the men in my life. For the most part, not all of them, not my current partner, but a lot of them have like sadness and what really attract not. Yeah. One of the things that really attracts me to male to male bodied people is like the need to take care of them. Like, oh, you're so sad. And then I'm like, oh, I must take care of you and protect you from this from the world. Here it is. At times like this, he is a small boy, grateful to be taken care of. You baby him and bring him his dinner, happy that the earlier tension has somehow dissipated. So the tension's still there, and she's still, like, a survivor, but it does seem, I don't know, it's a weird dynamic. Like, she is also able to caretake for him, even though he's an asshole. I feel like this still ties back to the first story because a lot of in a lot of ways I'm thinking about like real peak 1950s like housewife tropes Mm -hmm. and a lot of ways what the perfect wife is is a stand-in for your mother yeah stand-in for somebody who will take care of you who'll keep the house super clean who will cook for you who will do all that so like to me that just ended up playing into those sort of like tropes about what it means to be a good wife a good female partner to, to, to men in your life is that even though they're in charge so to speak heavy quotes you're the caretaker you know but it's also interesting because boyhood and why i brought in that personal stuff a little bit is because boyhood is so very vulnerable and men don't really get a lot of opportunities in our society to like be vulnerable so the caretaker role is an interesting dynamic because like you get to see that vulnerability and so I feel like it humanizes him a little even though he is such an asshole I think it also speaks a little bit because she describes him as being like boy-like I think it also to me felt like sad because boyhood is you know when we shove all of these toxic toxic masculine traits down boys throats and ultimately make them angry violent men like this or or can you know when things go poorly yeah that like she describes him as boyhood almost as if she like her doing this is in some way going to be able to like soothe some of this out of him by letting him be vulnerable mm-hmm. but it doesn't and, and it doesn't and it, and to a certain extent like she doesn't expect it to right like the tension is still there but that's what it reminded me of is like if only we could take some of these like very toxically masculine men and like put them back to childhood and like 
retrain them that it's okay to have real human emotions and then set them forth again. I want it to be taught in schools. Have we talked about that yet? We need to teach like how to emotion in schools, not just for boys, but for everybody. And so many of our problems would be solved. Yeah, (laughs) that's actually something that my company works on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's actually really fucking important. It is really important. Do you want to talk about the structure of this story? Because it is written in second person. And I wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah, I noticed right away that it was written in second person as well. I thought it was really interesting because for me, this woman feels watched all the time, right? Um, Either by her husband, who's just like waiting for her to fuck up, essentially, so that he can beat the shit out of her. Or by the woman in the trees who are like a kind and calming presence so I think that it let you into in a certain way by putting it in second person it simultaneously made you as the reader feel similarly watched and also made it really explicit that you were one of the watchers Mm -hmm. here if that makes sense like I think for me it was that dual purpose sort of feeling okay interesting yeah I didn't know I was thinking that it was in part because this is a story about domestic violence, I you brought up this point, actually, in our Carmen Maria Machado episode, that the you helps put you in that place. And, like, because domestic violence is so commonly overlooked by people and by society and constantly questioned, like, you are there to um, feel all of our main character's feelings and experience the violence for yourself. And so it personalizes it. I think that's also probably part of the point. I don't know, it's hard, right? Because though, to a certain, I guess, I guess it's one of those things where it's like with second person, if you're using second person, that's probably always your intention as the author. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I like to try and think of other ways that it like works to add to the story. But I think that that's just like a true statement, right? If somebody is using second person, they are deliberately putting you, the reader, in the position of feeling the feelings and thoughts of the main character by addressing it towards the reader. The main character could also be in the similar vein of Machado's work, like talking to herself. And maybe this is a part of her healing process, like understanding where the lies are, letting herself know that she lies to herself. Yeah, and I think that's especially compelling knowing the fact that she ultimately becomes a watcher too in the sense that like she becomes one of the women in the oak tree. Mm-hmm. Something that I thought also this is like such a small moment in this and it might be a little off topic, I'm sorry, but uh when she's talking to her landlord, she finds out that his grandmother also talked to the women in the oak trees and stuff. And that to me was just such a beautiful moment, also a female solidarity, even though they don't even like meet or talk, but like she finds such comfort in that and like knows that she would like his grandma and all of that. And I think for me, that was also a really important moment in um, with coupled with the moment where the landlord's wife comes over and is like really kind to her and like invites her to the pancake breakfast and stuff. And like, they're there because they're clearly concerned about her, right? Like Mm -hmm. they want them to get out of the house and be more social and are like attempting to invite them out of this isolation. Um, And I think that as much as the, her solidarity with the woman in the oak trees was really nice. Seeing those two small moments of connection with like real female humans was also important and really added something to the story for me. Yeah, it kind of, like, representation matters, right? Like, even just knowing that there are other people who have similar experiences to ours 
can be really comforting. And it does seem like just the idea of another woman living in that house, like brings immense comfort to our main character who is so isolated and whose only point of contact seems to be her sister and who is like isolated by her husband from her sister. So yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. Not for this story. Okay. Were were these feminist stories? I think in their content, no. I think if you read deeply into their societal critique of why people are this way, mm-hmm. yes. So you don't, oh, wait, so like you don't think that the um, the tree story could be feminist? It's a woman leaving her husband for, there's no wrong answers. I'm just curious. Like it's a woman leaving her husband to join other women. I think it is feminist. I think especially in that like societal critique. I think I just, I think it's just so hard to read about like this level of violence for 95% of both stories because the moment of escape does happen at the end. Yeah. That I think to a certain extent, they're like clearly feminist, but I could see a world in which some people who aren't exposed to this kind of literature very often would have to like really think about them to get that message off of it. Really? Okay, interesting. I think for me, it's just because the moment of escape is in both places is very, very short and at the end and isn't unpacked. So like 95% of the story is about the suffering and then 5% of the story is about the freedom. And the fact that the freedom exists is what I think pushes it into the fact that it is like, it is feminist. I just think that... I don't know. I don't know. I guess just for me, like, it wasn't as empoweringly feminist as maybe, like, in the dream house. Yeah. Where even though we're also talking about domestic violence, you know from the beginning that Machado, like, the 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 ways in which Machado escaped are woven more through the entire narrative rather than, like, shoehorned at the end. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, there's also the fact that, like, these are short stories and there's only so much you can do in that space. Um, I think I would just feel more empowered by these stories if maybe we got like two pages more at the end where we actually see what life is like for this woman, for these women outside of these circumstances. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I think probably like, I think I have the opposite sort of like critique than you. I think that like, on the surface, they are feminist, but there could be even... Um, more so, I think, the tree story, because it, it passes my my test a little bit. Like, we have multiple woman characters. <laughs> but, like, when you unpack it further, it gets a little murky, especially because, and I think the author is doing this deliberately, as we've talked about before. But, like, especially with the first story, the vegetable woman story, that's seen almost entirely through the male lens. And then with the second story, at least we, we've we've got the perspective of a female character. Like she is our main character, but she is also kind of seeing herself through a misogynistic lens as well. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that they are like surface level feminist, but could do better. Yeah. I think it's really hard to say. Cause like, I guess my critique to that is that 
the end of the tree story, right? Like is all about the fact that she has to go and almost like unlearn all of these things about herself. Yeah. So like it addresses that there's, it's just so little in comparison to like the majority. All Yeah. To like all of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. So like, I feel, I just, I just feel conflicted about these stories. Like if, if you were to really push me, I would say yes, that they were feminist. I just feel like they end up in, murky water where we're really critiquing society a lot more than we are telling stories of like about women. about overcoming because we are telling stories about women overcoming but like it's way heavier on the societal critique about like how these circumstances happen and it's hard too because we do read like we've this is the 1990 right we started at 1920 so like we've been reading stories that could be more feminist than this in the bite-sized bits and poems and stuff but I do think that like part of our critique is coming from a perspective in which we are more learned about gender than Pat Murphy probably was in 1990 30 years ago yeah like there are new terms for things and it's a whole new wave of feminism like our the, the wave of feminism that we're currently in and our like cusper generation is all about like really breaking down gender as a construct and really like bringing other people into the fold and we're at a place in which we can consume things that are more empowering and can be empowered because we've we've had the other groundwork to get to that place and I think that's a really compelling point too especially when we talk about this in comparison to previous decades because when you're thinking about 1990, right? Like you're thinking still about contemporary times. Mm-hmm. So I think it's way easier to be judging things by the standard that we have in 2020 and like the ideals that we were raised with and the, like, the learning that we have mm-hmm. versus the fact that like 1990 was actually 30 years <laughs> ago. And the, no, but you're right. Things were really different. Like it was still at like this weird cuspy, like third, fourth wave feminism place. And like, We've moved way past that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also to the credit of stories like these and thoughts like these and all of that previous work, right, is necessary to get us where we are now. So like, just because it doesn't necessarily hold up to the same standard today doesn't mean it wasn't like cutting edge at the time to a certain extent, too. Um, so I feel like all of that stuff comes into play this week and probably also in our 2000 and even in our 2010 bite-sized bits. Oh, yeah. Probably. That would be interesting. You know, like, <laughs> as we get closer and closer to 2020, where we are now, you want things to align more and more to the stuff that we were raised with. So I think that finding that wiggle room of where you see how things have changed in even a decade is going to be really compelling and also difficult. Yeah, I agree. I concur. Yes. Okay. Uh, Do we have homework? Do we have homework? I would really like to actively seek out more women writing horror fiction right now because this is the spooky season, right? Initially, Harmony and I were looking for like flat out, or at least I was looking for way more flat out, just like horror stories, ghost stories, you know, stuff that would really fit with Halloween. Mm -hmm. And while I always knew that the horror genre, whether in film or in um, literature, we did a whole episode on it last season, is a really difficult place for women to break into and have their voices heard. I think it didn't really super hit home to me until I was looking for just like literally any sort of like acclaimed 
or just or just like any any short story worth talking about apparently that was in the horror genre written by a woman in 1990 and spent a long time doing it and couldn't and it wasn't because they weren't out there or they weren't good enough it's just like the genre is so skewed toward men so and I know that that's starting to change in 2020 like I have quite a few female horror authors that I read now but I just really want to make sure that I'm going out there especially for women of color who are horror writers I want to really make sure that I'm like out there finding out who they are and then supporting them because my god (laughs) it took us a really long time to figure out what the fuck we were reading today just because we wanted it to be spooky yeah yeah it yeah, a lot of the stuff that I found, because I, I was able to find female horror writers, but it was mostly like post-2000s era. Like 2007 came up multiple times and 2015 came up multiple times. And 2015, I'm willing to bet, was a lot about Carmen Maria Machado because that was when she was like really it was, launching on the scene. It wasn't just her though. Like there was, Carmen Maria Machado was listed on one list, but there were actually particularly like not everyone was the same race, obviously, but particularly I saw a lot of women of color authors that were mentioned on various lists coming out during 2015, which is very interesting because, yeah, you said that's when Carmen Reed Machado hit the scene and she's like the big, big name right now. <laughs> for sure. But yeah, I think for me, that's just something, especially looking in the past and stuff, is something that I want to be more aware of, um, especially because I'm getting into horror as a genre more um, in general, and kind of trying to figure out what I like. I made the mistake of reading American Psycho. Do not recommend. Uh, yeah. Do you have homework, Harmony? Uh, what is my homework? Is it related to spookiness? I've been fighting my inner demons this week. We are not recording this during spooky season. And um, oh no, it, it is still July 2020 <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, I've been. I've been like. I'm alone in my house for the first time because we 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 have the COVID. You know, I mean, we don't have the COVID, but the COVID is going on. It will probably be going on when this is still, when this is released, unfortunately. But the COVID is going on and my partner is like away this week and it's been only several days, but I've been like really confronting my feelings of loneliness and sadness that I did not know were still present because I finally have like space to do so. So that's my spooky season homework. Very nice. What are you reading? What am I reading? Oh, I'm (laughs) I'm still reading Parable of the Sour. And that's oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> funny, because that, that episode will have come out a couple of weeks before this. But hey, that's what you get with pre-recording. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now, Maggie? I am reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, and I am reading The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. One of my other favorite podcasters who does um, Hot and Bothered, that's the name of the podcast, she has an ad for book of the month which i know is controversial but she has an ad for book of the month in which she talks about the vanishing half and it sounds really interesting so i'm glad you're reading it and i want to get your hot take when we're, when you're done i'm really liking it so far i also got my copy on off book of the month but it was before uh all of the stuff went down <laughs> which i'm not going to address now but you will notice that at least at least in this moment because they haven't fixed their shit yet i haven't posted any book of the month content for a while. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. I really liked her other book, The Mothers. This one is very different. 
but equally as compelling. And it's also historical fiction, which I really enjoy. So, you know. That's awesome. Works out. Yay, historical fiction. Okay, is there anything else we do at the end? Next week, we are reading The the Ghost Bride by Yang Zichu, which if you've been around here for a while, um, Harmony and I both read separately last year, not for anything to do with the podcast, and just liked so much that we're talking about it this year. So stay tuned for that one. It's a great book. Yeah, we have a lot of exciting books coming up for this month mary yeah yeah i'm excited to read carmilla with you that will be fun yeah oh harmony and i like the spooky season we do like the spooky season speaking of carmilla i know this is still on air but i wanted to tell you there is a copy i'm gonna probably audiobook my copy but there is a copy edited by carmen maria machado if you uh yeah when you need to buy it so (laughs) very nice that is exciting okay is that it folks Bye-bye. I think that's it, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the gays See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Spooky, 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 spooky. It's not as fun if you guys don't jump in, but that's okay.